Welcome back to The Middle of Culture, Episode 4. I'm one of your hosts, Peter Jones. And I'm your regular co-host, Braden Jones. And today we're going to talk about the novella, The Emperor's Soul, by Brandon Sanderson. Now, um, Braden, why don't you start off by telling us what is your experience with Brandon Sanderson? And I'm chuckling a little because I kind of know what it is, but I, I think that'll be good to kind of let everybody know. Uh, Brayden plus Brando Sando equals zero. <laughs> that is my experience. That is my experience with Brandon Sanderson. I know a lot of people who really like Sanderson's work. Um, I know a lot of people who hold him in really high regard, um, but I've never had an occasion to read any of it. Um, so I was excited when you said, hey, why don't we read this shorter book of his um, just to kind of give you a little amuse-bouche of what uh, Brandon Sanderson does. Uh, yeah, so, but I, I read a lot of fantasy when I was younger. Yeah. Here's the thing, listeners, in case you hadn't noticed, I was a younger sibling to Peter, and that means that I looked up to my older brother a lot and wanted to be a lot like him. <laughs> and and, there's and where some your of those things wrong. have... Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, not at all, not at all. Some of those things have stuck with me to this day, like the fact that Rush is still my favorite band. Yep. Uh, and some of those things have not stuck with me as much, like reading fantasy novels. And I totally uh, understand cause, that. Because when we were younger, uh, you know, we both read uh, a lot of the same stuff and we would switch paperbacks back and forth. And we talked about a couple a couple episodes ago with the Star Wars Expanded Universe stuff. Yep. We were doing the same sort of stuff with a lot of fantasy stuff. You know, the Sword of Shannara and all those books, the Terry Brooks books, the uh, Terry Goodkind books, which don't get me started on oh, Terry Goodkind. Sorry, I just um, had to swallow down the throw up in the back of my throat. Sorry. <clears throat> Look, the guy is bad and was always bad. We just didn't know it at the time. Well, um, and I would like to say in our defense, he got worse. Like, well, I'm sure he did. The first few books are garbage, but they're at least digestible garbage. But at some point he just went off the rails and it turned into hot garbage that was no longer digestible. That's what I'm sticking to, to excuse the fact well, that here's I read the, like problem. the first seven books. Oh. I was going to say, here's the problem with Terry Goodkind. He has repellent politics that took over his mediocre fantasy writing. Yep. That was and if he had problem. stuck to the mediocre fantasy writing, I probably would have stuck it out a little more, even though his books were really just, here's my author insert character who everyone has the hots for and who every lady wants to have sex with. Mm-hmm. Um, which was weird because I see your author picture, Terry Goodkind. I know what you look like. Not every woman in the world wants to have sex with you. Oh, such a creeper. Such a creeper. Yeah. Um, but again, once it became like weird libertarian, like polemics instead of like mildly serviceable fantasy, I was done. But that kind of, that kind of happened to me with all fantasy to a certain degree. Like I reached a point where I just was not, nothing was capturing my attention. I got four or five books into the wheel of time and I was like, ah, I don't want to read these anymore. I got four or five books into the Terry Goodkind books and I didn't want to read them anymore. I got really like bored of the Terry Brooks books. Once he like combined his disparate series into one metaverse of all of them. And you're like, Oh, so the word in the void stuff is the prequels to the Shannara series because he screws up and the world gets post-apocalyptic eyes. I don't care. I don't care about any of this. Uh, So I just kind of got out of fantasy books probably when I was about 
15 to 20, that, you know, late teens. And I never really have gone back to them since. I have read, I've read a couple things as an adult that were things that I always meant to get to. You know, I read the Dragonlance Chronicles, those first three books, mm-hmm. because I was interested. And they're pretty okay. They're not terrible. And, uh, you know, one of my very favorite comic series is a high fantasy comic series. ElfQuest is one of, I think, the great accomplishments in American comics. Uh, and I could talk for hours about why I think ElfQuest is so great and why Wendy Penny is one of the great artists of her generation, even though no one gives them gives her her due. Uh, but that's about it when it comes to, like, that high fantasy for me. Okay. I kind of just got out. Sure, sure. What about you? I know that, again, we had a lot of those shared uh, interests, but I think that you have maintained more interest towards uh, fantasy than I have. Yeah, and I don't think that that's incorrect at all. I have always enjoyed science fiction and fantasy, and that's been predominantly what I've read over the years. And I kind of, I come and go with fantasy and science fiction. Sometimes I'll read a lot more science fiction, and then I'll find myself reading more fantasy. I did decrease, honestly, how much I was reading for fun in the course of med school and residency and and kind of all that. But But I've always enjoyed fantasy, and... You know, some of my favorite series uh, would fall under the fantasy umbrella. Certainly things like, you know, obviously there's the Lord of the Rings, which is kind of the granddad of everything, but I have some issues with that. And we'll actually talk about that in a couple minutes, I think. But, you know, I love the um, uh, the Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn trilogy by Tad Williams. I read that every three or four years. I reread that because I enjoy it so much. Wow. And Brandon Sanderson was kind of one of those guys who I had heard about a little bit, but it was when he was selected by Robert Jordan's widow to complete the wheel of time series that his name really sort of reached the zeitgeist to the point that I paid attention to him. I was traveling probably to interview for jobs. If I had to guess, I think it was as I was finishing residency and I was flying around uh, doing job interviews and I happened to see Mistborn in uh, one of the little airport bookshops. And I picked it up and started reading it on my plane flight. And that was what did it for me. I started reading Mistborn and I was like, okay, this is what I'm looking for. And we'll talk a little bit about, I think, why Brandon Sanderson hits for me as, as much as he does. But, you know, I have read at this point almost everything that Brandon Sanderson has written. I have not read the gr- graphic novel White Sand and I have not read his kids series, Alcatraz and the Evil Librarians, but I've read almost everything else. He has a newer kind of young adult series that is not connected to his fantasy series that I own uh, on Kindle and such, but I haven't finished those. I haven't read those yet. But other than that, I've definitely read all of the Cosmere books, and that's where The Emperor's Soul falls. And I've read all the Cosmere novellas as well. And some of them I've read a few different times. And so uh, I'm quite familiar with him. And I would say, honestly, at this point, he probably is my favorite uh, fiction author. And that would be across both science fiction and fantasy, just because in sci-fi, there's nobody right now who everything they write, I want to read. But everything that Brandon Sanderson writes, pretty much I'm I'm going to read it at some point. And so I definitely consider myself a big fan. 
at the same time, I am not one of those people who has dived really, really deep. I mean, there are people who have dived so deep into the connections in the Cosmere and the different aspects of, you know, the shards and and all this kind of stuff that it's a little much for me. And I enjoy the fact that it's there for those who want it, but eh, I don't need to, to jump into that stuff quite so deep at this point. But yeah, I... I'm a big fan, and that was kind of one of the reasons why I picked The Emperor's Soul, because it is pretty short. I mean, it's like what? Digitally, it said it was like 74 pages or something like that. And so Yeah, my paper copy is like 160-something. Yeah. So it's pretty easy to get through. Um, you know, it doesn't take very long to read, but I think gives you a really good insight into how does Brandon Sanderson write, and what are some of the the key aspects to his fantasy? Because there's some things that he does that are different than a lot of mainstream fantasy that I really enjoy and I think set him apart, at least for me. So, Okay, so that's, that's a good question because I've heard uh, a lot of people talk about the things that they like about Brandon Sanderson's work, but I want to I hear from you, like, what are those unique aspects that draw you so much to his work okay. um, and, that, and, and that resonate with you so much? Sure. One of the things that bothers me about fantasy is the fact that magic can do anything. In, in far too often, magic is just this vague, nebulous thing that has power, but you don't understand where does the power come from? Why is the power the way it is? I'm going to pick on JK Rowling because she's such an easy punching bag, but in going back and trying to reread the Harry Potter series to my kids, as I've gotten older and reread them, I have such a hard time with so many aspects of those books. And all I'm going to focus on is right now, the magic aspect, but it's so inconsistent across the series and there are times where you know one of the character does characters does something and you you kind of are left looking at it going well, why didn't you just fix this whole thing four books back then if you can do that and so it's the inconsistency in magic i'll be honest this is where i'm going to pick on the lord of the rings a little bit and i'm going to preface this by saying don't anybody tell me to read the silmarillion because what i'm going to say maybe it's answered there and i don't care <laughs> what i'm Here's the thing about this Silmarillion. It's boring. It's, it was not written to be a like story that an average person would pick up and want to read. Exactly. The Hobbit is a joy of children's literature. The Lord of the Rings is a really solid six book series that you read really quick because nothing really happens and then suddenly everything has happened. And yeah. that's the interesting thing about reading Tolkien is in any given chapter, nothing really happened. But then you look back over the book and you're like, all this stuff happened. Yeah. And it's they're eminently readable. They and are. then you open the Silmarillion and you're like, this is just boring encyclopedia marginalia you wrote for yourself so that you could read these imminently or write these imminently readable books. But this is not meant for consumption. Correct. This is meant for you, a weird academic. This reads like weird academic notes. As a weird academic, this reads like our notes. And, and that's why I don't want anybody to tell me I should read it. But my, my issue and I was thinking about this actually earlier today. I was doing dishes before before we started recording, and this came to mind. You read The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and I'm left with the question, what does the One Ring do? 
I mean, we know it can make you go invisible, and we know that it can kind of corrupt you a little bit, but like, what else can it do? I mean, one ring to rule them all and blah, 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 blah. But like, we don't know anything yeah, but how really does it rule about them? the rings of power. Like, what are they supposed to do? We don't know. And so we've got this huge magic system that I just didn't feel was ever very <laughs> clearly defined. Well, you'll get your answers in September, thanks to Amazon. <laughs> yeah, we'll see if I watch that one. I don't know. It depends on how bored I am when it comes out. But Same. But the contrast that I see there is in all of Brandon Sanderson's books, he has a very clearly defined magic system. And that magic system tends to vary world to world, but each world has a specific system of magic and it has very clear rules and he spells those out for you. And then the thing that shouldn't feel like such an accomplishment, but it does, he doesn't break those rules. He is true and internally consistent hundred percent throughout all his books. And I love that. I love having these neat, unique magic systems in the emperor's soul. It has to do with creating seals and this takes place on a world in the Cosmere where kind of seals and sigils is the form of magic. There are other worlds where it has to do with light. There are other worlds where it has to do with metals. But every time he lays out a magic system, number one, it tends to be fairly unique compared to most major fantasy. And I know there's certainly a lot of unique fantasy and really interesting stuff out there that people are doing. But to have hit the mainstream the way Brandon Sanderson stuff has, there are very few fantasy authors who are creating as unique magic systems that are as internally consistent as him who have really hit the mainstream. So I really, really like that. That's the number one thing I like. Um, I, one of the other things that I really like that he does is in this universe he's created, the Cosmere, which is this shared universe that the majority of his novels and novellas take place in. Not all of them. They're outliers that don't take place in the Cosmere. But all of the ones that take place in the Cosmere are deeply interconnected. And we'll talk about this with The Emperor's Soul because there's some really deep connections that this novella has to the rest of the Cosmere. But you don't have to know about any of those connections to enjoy most of his things. It'll be a lot more, there's a lot more depth to it and there's a lot of really neat things to uncover if you want to. But so much of the stuff you can just read and you can enjoy the story for itself without getting too deep into how does it connect with everything else. And that's another thing I really like is fairly accessible, well-contained stories, but that are deeply interconnected to all of these other stories. And you only have to go there if you want to. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I didn't, I obviously didn't have any background in any of this and there are certain holes um, in the world building, not in the magic system. The magic system was very clearly delineated. Um, but there were other things in his world building that I felt like were lacking that I wonder if would have been made up for if I were familiar with some of that stuff. Like the one thing that, uh, well, here, here's what I'll say. My overall analysis, this was, um, yeah. And, and I want to hear what you think about this because we, you know, again, we talked a little bit about it uh, a few days ago and I specifically said, I don't want to hear your opinion about it until we record. So this is 
First time me hearing what you think about it. To be fair, I wasn't through it with it by then, so I couldn't have really given you that good of, <laughs> a, 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 of a, a way that I felt about it. I, I enjoyed myself. Um, I'm not. I, I wasn't wowed by it, but I, I had a good time. Um, I'm not going to rush out and read uh, his other books, I don't think. Sure. But I'm glad that I've read this so that I can put it into context with a lot of the other, um, you know, that that fantasy and sci-fi that I have read, um, and that and the you know the popular currents in uh, fantasy writing. I know that a lot of people really share your affection for his systematizing of the world of magic and the ways in which magic works and the rules that magic has and the ways that he doesn't break those rules. I've heard that everyone I've talked to about Brandon Sanderson says that exact same thing as one of their very favorite things. So clearly you are not alone (laughs) in wanting knowable uh, tactile systems for magic. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was interesting. It was uh, the the concept for the way that the soul stones work and how the signs and sigils worked uh, and were interconnected with one another, how different societies had different ways that they worked with those sigils, I thought was interesting world building. Um, but yeah, I thought it was, uh, I felt like the prose was serviceable if stilted at times. Um, I thought that the story was interesting. Um, I was, you know, I wanted to, I, I, it had, um, propulsion as I read it. You know what I mean? Sure. Like it, it made me want to finish it. It wasn't like, oh, I have no desire to finish this. I was like, I'd like to find out what happens, mm-hmm. um, by the end of this book. I'd like to know, you know, does shy meet her goal? Is she able to do the things that she wants to do? Um, yeah. So I enjoyed it, uh, all told, um, but not enough to rush out and. So what were some of the gaps that you felt there were in the world building? Um, I don't know if this is true of his other books. I can only, again, I can only speak to this book. He never tells me who anyone looks like, or like any person never tells me what they look like. Yeah. So I am not, I, I am not given, um, description in a way that allows me to fully capture visually in my mind what he's describing. Like, I think that the, uh, functionaries of the society are of different species of of humanoid the grands are those a different species of humanoid no no they're not a different species i don't think so they were treated like they were a different species in the way that it was written yeah because they were like bigger and live longer and all this kind of stuff but then they were never described so i was never able to be like okay, well, are they just like humans who live a long time or are they like a different species? And the only, interestingly, the only really clear definition, like definitive, I can immediately imagine what this person looks like is the blood sealer dude. Yes. Because the blood sealer dude was described and their culture was described in enough detail that I was able to paint that picture in my head. Whereas the rest I felt was a little messier in the way that the, the um, descriptions were, were given to me. And so I had to do a lot of that, uh, that mental image building on my own. And I think that that's really fair. Um, now that you mention it, I can definitely see that. It is, I think, something he leaves out of this because it's a, a novella. Because it's definitely not something that exists in in a lot of his other series, you know. I think of okay, 
I think of the Stormlight Archive, which is what I've been spending the most of most time with recently. And and you get really clear descriptions of how do the characters look? You know, what does Kaladin look like? What about Dalinor? What about you know the all the characters, the Parshendi and, and everything, the different races and everything. He gives a, a really good description of them a lot of the time. I think there are times where he leaves it out, and I think it's on purpose. And again, here I think that it was... So this story takes place on Sel, S-E-L. That's the planet that this takes place on. And it's the same planet that his first published book, Elantris, takes place on. But it's a different continent. And so I think that there's probably some of that where there's a lot more description in Elantris about things. And I think he leaves this out here because it's shorter. And uh, I don't know, maybe he didn't feel like it was necessary for this particular story, but it's definitely sure. something that he fills in, in in a lot of his other works. So it's not something that is universal across his, his books. I think it is particular to this um, particular story. That doesn't, that doesn't really, dis- uh, uh, what is the word? So it doesn't surprise me. I couldn't think of the words in English um, I, because it did feel like it was a... Uh, because I know this is a guy who often writes doorstoppers, I felt like this was a uh, a stricture of the form of being a novella, mm-hmm. where he was like, I've got to work with economy of words here, so if I want my magic world to be fully systematized, I've got to cut something, and what I'm going to cut is the descriptions of everything else besides the magic system. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's fair. What other gaps? Is there anything else that you noticed where you felt like, eh, I would have liked to have heard more or read more or seen more about this. Okay, so this one is silly, and maybe it doesn't apply to other people. <laughs> That's okay. But it definitely it definitely applies to me when I read sci-fi and fantasy especially. If you want your characters to express strong emotion, use the cuss words I know. <laughs> Don't invite, don't invent new cuss words. And I know that it's fun because you're building this fantasy world or this sci-fi world to invent new cuss words. But like the counterpoint to the, you know, there are a couple of cuss words that are constantly used throughout. Mm-hmm. They use knights as an interje- as like a curse interjection a lot, or they use like lights alive or days or things like that, which I'm sure in the cosmology of this world might make sense as, as a reason this is a cuss. And it actually but, does. Yes. But you don't know that. That's good to know. I don't know that as a reader. Yeah. There's no reason for knights to be a cuss word to me. Um, because it's one of those things where I don't know exactly how strong this cuss word is. Uh-huh. Now, in English, I know if you use a damn or a hell, okay, this is sort of a situation. But if you're pulling out the F word, I know how strong a situation this is. <laughs> or if you're... Or if you are profaning a god, I know how strong of a situation this is. Um, <laughs> and and it puts those that situation into a better context for me. Uh, the counterpoint that I would place against, and again, this is not only a problem of Brandon Sanderson. I see this problem with lots of fantasy and sci-fi where they will invent new cuss words. Um, and it's just like, just use the stuff we have so that it's parsable for me as a reader or as a consumer. Uh, my example of this, my counterpoint of a way that it works really well is, um, have you ever watched the show Deadwood? I have not. You should, because it's real good. Uh, but in, if anyone doesn't know what Deadwood is about, it is a it is a historical fiction series about the 1860s South Dakota 
mining town Deadwood. And one of the things that David Lynch, the uh, creator of that show, did that I think is really notable, and one of the things that makes it maybe a hard show for people to watch with, uh, you know, uh, maybe uh, softer sensibilities than than one such as myself, is he would look he he looked really carefully into all of the historical context and he saw all of the like historical cusses that people were using in the 1860s and he was going to use those as he was writing these episodes and then he's like it doesn't have it doesn't embody my dialogue with force that i want it to embody Mm -hmm. so what he does is he uses contemporary swear words instead of the swear words they would have used in the 1860s and it's a little jarring when he starts saying, you know, mother effer this and mother effer this and sea sucker that and all this sort of stuff. And that's like the whole dialogue of that is extremely profane mm-hmm. because that's the way people would have talked in a frontier town like Deadwood. Right. But by using those words that have specific feelings for you as a 21st century viewer, it makes you feel like the emotion that those words convey more strongly than if he'd been like you dadgum smarm habbler or whatever the heck they would have said in the 1860s. Yeah. And so that is, that was one of those things that I was just like, just like take a God's name in vain. It's fun. And it makes me know how serious this situation really is. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's what they're doing with knights. Maybe knights are a form of deity in this world. And so whenever she goes knights, it's like as good as like saying, Oh, Judas Priest except the strong version that everyone's <laughs> thinking in their brain when I say Judas Priest. Um, so I don't know. I just don't know enough. Sure. No, that totally makes sense. And again, I think is a fair criticism of of it because it does. If you're not familiar with the kind of the setting of the world and the cosmology and stuff, then it does make some of those words and some of those expressions, uh, it gives them less weight. They have less punch to them because like you said, you're not familiar with them. That uh, makes sense. But like I say, I I liked the book overall. I thought Shy was a very interesting main character. Mm-hmm. Um, I was curious as to does is the society she's from like coded as East Asian in the other books in this series? Because like she's lightly coded as East Asian, but I can't tell how much of that is the cover for my print version, which has a clearly East Asian woman on the cover, mm-hmm. and how much of that is what I inferred from the writing. Uh, I don't know. What do you What do you have to say about that? No, it, it clearly is of an East Asian type descent and and type culture. He doesn't. the The belief is that this story takes place a number of years after the events of Elantris, and the second book in that series has not come out yet, and I think he's still working on it. But okay, the thought is that this takes place a number of years after, again on a different continent. But there's some, and this is one of the critiques I would have about Brandon Sanderson. Not everything is in his books or his novellas. It just isn't. There's a lot of stuff yeah. that can be found in interviews and in crowd, you know, fan interactions. He's really good about opening up with fans when they have questions and when they have what can kind of look like crackpot theories, and, and he'll address them as long as in no way do they spoil a book that hasn't been released yet. And so he's very open about doing that, but it complicates things a little bit because there's a lot of little pieces of information here and there that are not in books, 
but that he has said in an interview or in a Q&A or, or something like that, that, of course, the more rabid fans than I have kind of pieced these all together. But in kind of bringing that all together, yes, this clearly is sort of an East Asian situation uh, would be the closest okay. analog we have. But it is not clearly spelled out here. It's spelled out in other bits and pieces of things. Yeah. I mean, like I say, the biggest spoiler for me was the postscript where he talked about being in Taiwan and the uh, cover that is clearly, you know, an East Asian woman on the cover of it. Yeah. It's not a very great cover, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah, I agree. So I love this book. Also, my other, this is uh, just really quick. This is a silly uh, complaint that's not actually a complaint, but a funny comment I want to make. It has all these great things that look like tarot cards in it. And then there's nothing even close to a tarot card or a tarot system. Or please tell me he's got a magic system somewhere that's based on a tarot. I'm trying to think. Come on, Brando. Learn your tarot, buddy. Probably is something. There's got to be something. They, it could be because I don't know if those are in my digital copy. And I'm trying to think if I remember anything. And I don't know that I do off the top of my head. But they could definitely be. It's a cool. It's a cool image. It looks like a cool back to a tarot deck. That I'm curious what the face cards look like. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know off the top of my head. I'd have to look into that one a little bit more. So I'll just say no. I don't know. Brando, if you haven't make a tarot based magic system on one of your many planets, I wouldn't be surprised if he does. Again, he tries all sorts of different things. So, um, but you know. I, and again, obviously I was the one who suggested that we read this. So I really, really enjoy this a lot. And I first read it a number of years ago and remember finishing it and just being just, I loved it. And I can't remember exactly why. And I'll be totally honest. The second time I read it, I didn't finish it and feel that same excitement that I felt the first time I read it. So something about maybe where I was or, or I don't know what it was about the first time I read it that hit me so hard. And it did not hit me nearly as hard this time around. I thoroughly enjoyed it, but I didn't finish it and think, Oh my gosh, that was amazing. I want to read it again. And so I don't know if that's me. I don't know if it's having read more of his stuff that does have some more depth to it. This didn't hit me as hard this time. Again, thoroughly enjoyed it. We'll probably read oh, yeah. it again at some point down the road, but I'll also be the first to admit I didn't finish it this time and feel that same wow that I felt the first time I read it, or at least that I remember feeling the first time that I read it. And so, you know, it was, I was a little surprised when I got to the end because I finished it and I thought, well, where was the thing that made me so excited the last time I read it? I mean, like I enjoyed it. I, I, I liked it. I liked the characters. I liked how the story played out. I enjoyed all that, but I got to the end this time and didn't feel that same, just kind of punch to the face that I, for some reason felt the first time. I don't know why. Interesting. I definitely noticed that when I finished it this time around. And I will say like, it's got a really explosive and exciting climax. Like this book is uh, for being a, not a long book. It's still quite a short, a slow burn. Yes. Like there is a lot of build as you're seeing how the magic system works out. And as shy works towards her task, which, you know, we'll probably have a spoiler section at the end, which we won't talk about right now, but like when, 
when it starts to hit, like when you get to the end and the action starts getting percussive, I was like, okay, okay, let's roll. Let's go. Yeah. Let's go. And then it was over because it's a short book. Yeah. Um, but I do, I do think that that was when it really, I was like, okay, okay. I got this. I can Okay. Let's see more of this. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting because I felt the same way. And, and you point that out. Elantris, which again, his first published novel taking place in the same world as this was very much the same. Now it's way longer. It's like 600 and something pages, but oh, I'm not going to ever read that then, you know, <laughs> but it does the same thing where it feels like a real slow burn. And I'm, you know, I remember reading it thinking, oh, okay, okay, let's, something's got to happen here. Something's got to happen. And then when things start happening, all of a sudden I felt to myself, I'm like, there's not enough book left. You need, there's not, how, what's going to, come on. I need more of this. There's not enough book left. You're giving me too much, too hard, too fast here at the end. And so I just... I always blamed that in Elantris on it being his first published novel because the pacing felt a little off. But it's actually really sure. interesting that these take place in the same world. And there's some of that here, too, where it is a slow burn until, bam, right at the end. And then everything's going on and then it's over. So that, that's really interesting that Elantris was the same way. I do wonder because I know that this really varies from author to author. I wonder how strong of a uh say his editors have yeah like because i wonder how much of this is like because you know some people get kind of carte blanche for good or for ill like jk rowling after book three got carte blanche and then she wrote four real stinkers that are too long mm -hmm. i mean they're all real stinkers but they got expressly worse mm -hmm. after book three which is the, the best book highlight the of a bad series correct um and the same thing happens with the films it's the highlight of a bad film series as well um but like you could tell that the editors were like she just prints money we don't have to put any effort into this we'll give she'll give us whatever she gives us we'll throw it through the copy checker and like spell check for things that are not funny words she made up and we're fine yeah and like the same thing happens with stephen king about like early to mid 80s suddenly king starts writing these enormous books that while some of them are very good many of them are very bad <laughs> and then you look back and you're like dude you had the best one of the five best books you ever wrote was the first book you published and it is a tight 250 like you read carrie you are in and out in an afternoon and you are like holy crap that was good mm. and then you look at it and you're like this is 1500 pages i'm not gonna read 1500 pages of anything and it's again, it's a it's a question of how how firm of a, a, a of a leash do editors have, and what I and the reason why I wonder about Sanderson as to how strong or weak his uh, editors are was a very funny thing that stuck out to me as a sore thumb near the end of the book, um, which again this is petty and I understand that it's petty, but it made me laugh at work so hard uh, yesterday. I got near the end. And Frava was talking to Gautona and she's talking and she's thinking to herself and is surprised by Gautona's naiveness. <laughs> yes, I remember that too. 
<laughs> naivete is right there, sir. Yeah. yeah. Naivete is a word that has existed in English for 400 years. We stole it from the French 400 years ago. <laughs> you don't even have to do it the pretentious way. You don't have to put umlauts on the e, uh, the i or the accent agud on the e if you don't want to. You could just spell it with a y. It's fine. But that's the word. <laughs> and so that's when and, and it that was the one thing that stuck out to me and then I thought to myself do his editors just kind of give him a pass or is that because this is a novella that they're like, that's a novella. Just so I don't throw know, it through the spell checker. But what I will say is my gut leads towards the latter. And the reason is in a number of interviews that I've seen and a lot of things that he at least has said, he really does give the impression that he relies a lot on his editors and really respects their input. And so I would lean towards that. This is probably something that just kind of slipped through. They're like, hey, it's a quick little novella. Don't worry about it. Um, only because again, the way he has in a number of things that I've seen and read speaks so highly and seems so respectful of the people who, who help edit and stuff like that. So I don't know. That's just my assumption. Well, that's cool. I love an author. I love an author who treats their editors well because editors honestly make or break a book, just like we were talking about. Oh yeah. There's a reason why Prisoner of Azkaban is the best one, and it's because the editors did their job. Yeah. Well, there's a few things about the book that I do want to talk about before we kind of just yeah. get into spoiler territory. And one Let's of these things was, and this is something that doesn't really come through in this novella because it is short, but this is one of those connections to kind of the bigger Cosmere that that I thought was cool and I really enjoyed this and we talk about the magic system and the magic system involves carving and creating these seals and the, these kind of stamps and then stamping something and by doing so you alter it so they refer to this as forgery is the system that they talk about and the main character shy she's a forger and you understand little bits of the forgery and, and how it works throughout the course of the book. But one of the key things is you can't forge something to become something that it, that doesn't make sense. Like it has to be a logical extension of the thing. But she talks about the three realms. And so in the Cosmere, there's three realms. There's the physical realm, then there's the cognitive realm, and then there's the spiritual realm. And the cognitive realm is kind of the bridge between the physical realm and the spiritual realm. And uh -huh. in the Stormlight Archive, you really understand the cognitive realm more because some of the characters, I mean, great portions of some of the books take place in the cognitive realm. But the idea behind the cognitive realm is that everything, people, objects, everything basically thinks to some degree and has some concept of self. And so in the cognitive realm, if you're there, the physical manifestations of things is kind of this, what do they think about themselves? How do they picture themselves? Does a tree think of itself as a tree? And if so, in the cognitive realm, its manifestation will be different than the physical realm because its manifestation is, how does the tree picture itself? That's what's happening. And so with forgery, what she's doing and what they're doing is they create this stamp to place on an object is they're basically going into the cognitive realm. Then they're kind of trying to convince this thing that it's maybe more than it really is. So she talks about the vases. 
you know, and there's these cheap vases and they make cheap clay vases and then somebody stamps it into be a much to be a much nicer vase. Well, the idea behind this forgery is that in the cognitive realm, you're basically giving this vase a pep talk. You're like, hey, you are so cool. You are beautiful and you've got these awesome flowers and this artwork. And, the, and then the vase kind of starts to go, huh, I do. I'm pretty badass. And then you put the stamp on it and all of a sudden in the physical realm, it manifests what this object now considers itself in the cognitive realm. And that, again, that doesn't really come through. It comes through a little bit, but that's kind of my understanding how the forgery works. And I just think that's a really neat idea. So I don't know how much of that are you like, what are you smoking? And how much of that did you feel came through in the book? Uh, No, that was definitely a thing that I noticed. I'm trying to think there is a, a line of thinking in existential philosophy that uh, embodies that same concept. I am trying to think of the I, the name of it and uh, really drawing a blank right now. But the idea that everything has sentience and identity from the rock to the tree to the dog to the human, everything has that sentience and identity to it. Um, and like I say, that is an actual, uh, you know, uh, theory of existence hmm. in uh, existential philosophy that people talk about in your college class philosophy, probably 201, not 101. <laughs> but like, that's a thing that people genuinely believe and talk about right now. So I, that definitely resonated with me as like a concept that I was familiar with that I'd heard before. Um, and the thing that I thought was interesting is that it's uh, at least the way that shy describes it in this book is it's not even necessarily that, it is um, convincing the clay pot to be something it is not. It is helping the clay pot be the thing that it wants to be inside. Yeah, kind of helping it like, realize its I think, potential. Yeah, I think spe- specifically the the part that, that really stuck out to me about was the window, yep, the where she changes it window. from a janky, busted window to a stained glass window because it used to be a stained glass window and it wants to be that again. It wants to be a beautiful thing. And then again, Gautona's like... Eh, it's a window. It doesn't have feelings. And she's like, okay. Yeah. Well, who turned it into stained glass, buddy? I think I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I was not familiar with that kind of existential philosophy part of it, but that's pretty cool to know that that kind of lines up to some degree with that school of thought. Um, I'm going to kind of set the stage for, for what the story's about. And then I think let's just jump into spoiler territory. Heck yeah, baby. So the idea. And the main crux of this story is we have Shy, who is a forger. She has been caught because she was trying to replace the moon scepter with the forgery. Now, here's where we get into a little bit of an aside. The imperial fool who is referenced but is never directly seen is this character Hoyd. Hoyd is the one character who is in every single uh, Cosmere novel or novella. He is a world hopper, and he has some presence in every single book or novella that takes place in the Cosmere. So he's your he's your Randall Flag. He's your Walter O'Dim. Yes. He's your walking dude. Yes, very much so. And so the Imperial okay. Fool is Hoyd in this story. And apparently there was a prologue that more directly dealt with that, that I was reading that 
Um, test readers really just didn't feel that it worked well for the story, so he cut it, and it's not part of the story. But but that there there was part of the story originally that didn't make the final cut. Um, he gets he betrays Shy, and she ends up getting caught. And now we've got these arbiters who are kind of like sort of assistants to the emperor and there's different factions and the faction that's in power right now is the heritage faction. And we find out that an assassin was sent most likely from one of the other factions to assassinate the emperor Ashravan. And they were successful in killing the emperor's wife and then did enough damage to Ashravan that they were able to heal his body, but he's basically in a vegetative state. There's nothing there. And so what they want Shai to do is to create a seal, uh, uh, that a soul stamp that will place basically a soul back in the body, that will create this facsimile of the emperor so that he can remain in power, so that the heritage faction remains in power, and it's as if nothing ever happened. And then she's given 100 days to do it. And she basically says this is impossible. And they're like, well, not only do you need to do it, but you got to do it in 100 days because we can make the case that he's in mourning for his wife for 100 days and there's no public appearances. But at the end of that, he's got to come out and he's got to be the emperor and you got to make it happen. And so that kind of is the setup for the rest of the story that then takes place and each chapter is a different day. And it doesn't hit all 100 days. It takes skips and, and jumps here and there. But that's kind of the setup. So I think at this point, we're going to hit the spoiler horn. And now we're just going to talk about all of the different aspects of the story. So what did you think about um, kind of the setup? What were your thoughts on on the setup of, of the story here? Um, again, I think that this magic system is really cool. I think that it really worked for me um, conceptually. Um and so I was excited to, I, I, you know, again, I wanted to keep reading. It was not a chore for me to keep reading. Cause I was like, she's going to pull it off because I know how fiction works, <laughs> but I want to yeah. know how she pulls it off. Yeah. Uh, you know, I didn't, I, because again, this is popular fantasy fiction. I was not thinking to myself, oh, she's going to fail and get killed. That's not how this book ends. Right. Because that's not what popular fantasy does as a general rule. Yeah. Uh, and so I knew she was going to do it, but I wanted to know how. And I wanted to know, like, how did she rebuild this person? Even if ultimately I was like, okay, you rebuild... Again, this is spoiler territory. You rebuild him to be more ambitious about, like, being a better emperor. But, like, he's still an emperor. And, like, ultimately... And, again, this is... This is a thing I realized while I was reading. I think this is part of why I don't read fantasy as often these days. Fantasy, as a general rule is a conservative uh, viewpoint genre. And I'm not saying that to be bad, like, ooh, conservatives are bad because... I'm just saying it's it's a small c conservative in that, you know, a lot of times it's about reifying systems that already exist. It's about empowering uh, powerful people to do extra judicial and powerful things because that's what a I mean tell me a wizard is not like the worst version of a superhero because there's no state to stop them from doing whatever they want to do with their magical powers you know like yeah so so you know 
And so I really liked this book. Again, I, I really enjoyed myself. But at the end, I was like, yeah, but you still made him an emperor who's going to be a better emperor. But you could have made him an emperor who tried to dismantle an empire, which would have been cooler. But that's not how fantasy works. And no. I understand that. That's a that's one of those things that, like, that's, that is that is a thing that is between me and the genre as a whole, not me and this book. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I will agree with what you said, but also in the context, at least, of the way this magic system works, she couldn't have done that because That's true. for the soul stamp to take and for it to actually work, it had to be true to who he was. And flaws and all, she had to build that into the soul stamp or he was going to reject it. And we can see of course. that when she tries some of the soul stamps on Gatana, you know, it only lasts for a minute because she's trying to put parts of Ashravan in Gautana enough to see that it works and that he's adopting some of these things that she's understanding of the emperor. But within a minute, he rejects it because it's not him. And so she didn't try and make him a better emperor. Really what she did is she tried to strengthen his desires to be a better emperor from when he was a little younger kind of before he sure. got sidetracked by the frivolities and the excess and the gluttony that came with being emperor. She took kind of those, the more idealistic parts of him from earlier on and kind of brought them forward a little bit, but they had to be him and they had to still be there. And so yeah. at least in the setting of this, she couldn't have made him renounce the emperor empire because that wasn't him. Now, again, it could have been written that way, but but in this setting, that wasn't what he wanted. That wasn't how he was gearing towards ruling. And so at least for sure. you know, I can make the excuse that, well, it wouldn't have stuck. It wouldn't have worked. Oh, for sure. And again, like I say, this is this is bigger things of little Braden's politics versus the universe's politics more than <laughs> anything else. Um, and so I don't again, I, I think that you're exactly right, is that it's not that she built she built him not better in a way that was different than what he was. It was, if anything, reminding him to be the man he used to be. Yes. Like you said, that's a good way to put it, which is good. It's, it's a, it's a, that's a good thing. It sounds like he will be a better emperor, but still he is an emperor. And you know how I feel about empire. (laughs) Yeah, I do. No gods, no masters, throw down all monarchy. Come on, let's go. (laughs) This is why the French invented the guillotine is for monarchs. Let's go baby. (laughs) And this is a joke, obviously. No, it's not a joke. Um, But still like this, this is, this is just, uh, you know, again, my own personal peccadillos as a human uh, versus, you know, a, a genre that often reifies and rebuilds those sorts of things, a restorationist uh, in many ways. And, you know, like, uh, I love The Lord of the Rings, but The Lord of the Rings is a conservative restorationist thing because it's about putting the true king on the high throne again. Yeah, true. true. There's nothing more conservative and restorationist than putting a king on the throne again. Like, yeah. But it doesn't mean I don't like it. It's still, you still watch Aragorn get the crown put on his head by Arwen, and you're like, oh, man, this is still good. <laughs> you feel Look it. at those four little hobbit boys sitting in that crowd, and you just feel like warm fuzzies in your heart because those movies are so good. It's true. It's true. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting is, well, I don't know if I'd say really interesting, but one of the things I like about this is the way he does kind of work in these political machinations, that even within the heritage faction, you have some dissent. You know, you've got Gautama sure. who, 
you really learn as much as you can in this short work that he cared so much for Ashravan that it was kind of like he was the the kind of grandfather figure to to this emperor and that a lot of why Ashravan agreed to become emperor and and started down this path was because of his relationship with Gautana. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, you've got Frava who comes in and she's like, hey, look, you're a forger. You're kind of scum. But you know what? If you'll build a back door into his brain so that we can control him, I'll make you the leader of the scum in this city. And, you know, Shai immediately sees through this and she realizes, oh, Frava has absolutely no intention of ever letting me get out of here alive and starts to understand that Frava on the side has some forgers who are trying to take Shai's work and build their own soul stamp so that they can actually dispose of her, deep six her, and just have full control over him. She's smart. She figures that out, and she starts making sure that any of the notes that are being, quote, verified by uh, Frava's uh, forgers, that they're not accurate that her real notes she's got encoded in ways that only she's going to be able to really understand. But I kind of enjoyed again, underneath the current of her trying to understand the emperor to the point that she can basically recreate his persona and his personality is this not even, is it just the two fact the different factions are fighting against each other, but there's different motives in the factions. And for me, that was just one of those things that made it more interesting, kind of made me, enjoy it a little bit more made it a little less straightforward i agree i like the fact that there were those interfactional fight intrafractional fighting um and like that you could see the different motivations of the different counselors um because they they paint a richer world of the politics of this kingdom and the way that that those things work i definitely thought that that was you know it was well done i liked that a lot the one character that I will say, I don't know that I really ever understood his motivations was Zhu, the, the captain of the guard. I mean, because he's just he just, a fascist. He's I just, know. He just wants to kill her from day one. But I never really felt like that That was one of my disappointments in the characters. Again, limited by the, the, the time and the space that he has and the number of words. So I can forgive it. But that was one of the things where I just felt like, okay, you really, really want to kill this, this person. But I don't really know why other than you're the big meathead who just wants to kill something. So that- sometimes the cops are just the bad guy and that's what's happening here. He's a cop. He's a bad guy. That's true. That's true. And, you know, I love how she at the end re reforges her bed and part of a room to build that trap for him because she knows he's going to try and kill her. And so she is able to reforge everything so that he comes in and he falls into that pit and, and is trapped. One of the other things I thought was, I mean, really, that was where the book really got exciting. Oh yeah. Totally. Was once you, once zoo shows up, you're like, Oh man, we're going to get, it's going to hit the fan now. And it really does. Like when she pulls out that, uh, her own soul stone yes. and uses it temporarily on herself to go from like forger to like amazing warrior woman. I was like, okay, I am here for this. Yeah. And granted part of this is my own, like, I, I won't lie. When I do read science fiction and fantasy, I don't read a lot of it these days, but when I do, it's almost always by this author. I don't know if you're familiar with her. Her name is, she's a Thai author. Her name is Benjanoon Shridunkyao. <laughs> um, 
She's extremely good. And she almost entirely works in novella. So in that short form, there's only one of her books that's novel length. You know, it's like 230 pages. The rest are between about 90 and 140 pages, which is, I feel like the sweet spot for the length of a book where I'm like, okay, I can get in, I can enjoy it and I can get right back out. But she also writes a lot of really big, tough butches. And I was like, yo, Shy, you just became a Benjamin Shredden Cow character for five pages. Yes, let's go. <laughs> it was really exciting. Yeah, that, and that was one of the things I thought was really cool, too, is at the very beginning, you know, they have her essence marks. And we don't really know much about them other than we kind of understand over the course of the story what the essence marks are to some degree. But when she breaks that one out and uses it on herself and suddenly becomes Shizen and is like, yeah, you know, she just goes at it and takes out the skeletals that the blood seeker has or that the blood sealer has following her and dispatches zoo. And then basically she's defeated everybody. And she says to the blood sealer, she's just like, look, I know you've got somebody. Do you want me to kill you? Or do you just want to run off and go see with them, see them? And he's just like, boom, I'm out of here. Gone. And she, she does that again at the end uh, where she applies kind of her survivalist essence mark. But one of the... And she'd been using the, the beggar essence mark to get out of the city as well as disguising the beautiful horse she stole, yep. Zoo's horse. Yep. Uh, and then again, she swaps again and she's like, well, I guess I got to go live off the grid for a while. Yeah. One of the essence marks that we don't ever see her use, and I think with good cause, because it's kind of like her last resort she has an essence mark that's going to make her completely forget everything about forgery, completely forget who she is, who she was and create a whole fiction of a different, you know, I think it even says she's got letters prepared from a, a fictional aunt and uncle and everything. Uh-huh. And, you know, I just think it's such an interesting thing where she's got all these contingency plans lined up, but that's what they're holding against her. They say, we've got your essence marks. Not only do we have you, but we have these, and it's at the end where, you know, on, on day 98, Zoo comes in to kill her. She's managed to kind of waylay the blood sealer so the seal expires and she can actually get out of her room. And she is escaping and goes to Ashravan with a seal and stamps him with the seal. And he comes to and he's Ashravan and she she kind of talks to him. And, and he does a pretty decent job, I think, in a relatively short amount of time of figuring out what happened. And, you know, says to her, he's like, look, you got to get out of here. Go get out of here. And on her way out, she runs into Gautana, gives him a book that's her notes. And then he's like, you know what? Boom. Here you go. Here's your essence marks. And that's when she's able to fully escape now that she has these essence marks again. And I, I just thought it was such a neat, a neat way for the main character to gain power and, but only temporarily. And that there was some cost yeah. associated with it. And again, it kind of comes back to the reasons I like Brandon Sanderson, because I hate, and this flies directly in the face of Terry Goodkind, whose name we besmirched earlier and whose name I will besmirch any chance I get. But in his books, the main characters just become more and more powerful and more, I mean, just to the point where you're like, this is ridiculous. This main character. Again, it's a self. Yeah. 
It's a self-insert power fantasy. Absolutely. So, of course, he keeps making his self-insert characters stronger and stronger and sexier and sexier because that's what happens when you start feeling that good endorphin hit of being like, ooh, but in this book, book me gets all the ladies and is so powerful. <laughs> so, you know, I like the fact that Shy can have these different abilities, but it is only for a period of time and that it comes at some sort of cost. It's not something that's limitless. And it just takes something that is fantastical, that is completely outside the realm of reality, and injects a certain amount of realism to it, where it feels like, yeah, I mean, we know that this isn't something that could happen, but in the world he has set up, it seems believable. And I yeah. I really enjoyed that fact and, and kind of that facet of the magic system there at the end. Um, yeah. I don't know. Any final thoughts? I mean, I think we've we've kind of gone over the main plot points. And again, it's not very long. It's a pretty easy read. Um, but, but anything yeah, else I, you wanted to mention? Like I said, I really like it. Um, I, I am not interested in reading 600-page books. But you said there are other novellas also in this series? I might read one of those in the future. Yeah. So there's a couple other ones that are in the Cosmere. There's the Sixth of the Dusk and... Um, shadows for silence in the forests of hell i think it's called it's it's a bit of a convoluted title but that's a good title that sounds like a post-rock band's name (laughs) it kind of does um those are in there there are a number of other novellas i mean there's dawn shard there's a couple others that take place in between the books in the stormlight archive those ones not i mean they're really really enjoyable i love them but they very much fit in in between the books of the Stormlight Archive. And so taken alone, I think they would be hard to read. Uh, but definitely Fair. Sixth of the Dusk and, and Shadows for Silence in the Forest of Hell um, are cool. That one, yeah, that's really, they're really good too. And and they stand alone well enough that you could absolutely read those and, and feel, okay, good. I don't need to read anything else. I got what I wanted out of this. Well, cool. And like I said, I don't. I'm not going to rush out to purchase one this, uh, you know, this afternoon after finishing this. But I would read one again, you know, in a few months when I'm, you know, in the mood for something. And I would say to any listener who enjoyed this and wanted some more uh, East Asian tinged fantasy, but written by an actual East Asian woman or Southeast Asian woman. Go read uh, Winterglass by Benjamin Trudenkiao. It's very good. I'll definitely have the to three check book. That out third book in that series just came out i haven't picked it up yet but uh i'm really excited that is a very weird series where the main character has a shard of the ice queen's mirror in her heart which empowers her huh. and it's very cool one of the other sets of novellas that you might enjoy that i had read the first two novellas and uh, a number of years ago and actually started rereading them after i finished the emperor's soul is legion legion skin deep and then the third one i think is called lies of the beholder but they're not connected to the cosmere and the idea is the main character stephen leeds is i mean he's basically schizophrenic i think but he's a genius and he can learn things incredibly fast but the way he's managed his schizophrenia is he creates these aspects of himself these apparitions And these apparitions are the ones who deal with these particular bits of knowledge. So, for example, he has one apparition, one aspect. He refers to them as JC. And JC is a military expert, and he's a firearms expert, and he's a 
and you know like the bodyguard kind of of persona nobody else i mean these people don't exist but these are all aspects in his mind and as far as the main character steven is concerned he can see them and he interacts with them and has to maintain the illusion enough to try and keep his hold on his sanity that if he goes places and he has three aspects with him he will buy four tickets say to get into the the carnival or he will order food that will sit uneaten on the table that this is what his aspects told them they wanted to eat so it's it's a really interesting set of books where he kind of because he's a genius people come to him with like little things to solve mysteries to work on but the way he very tenuously is holding on to his sanity and and how that sanity is slipping through the course of the novellas but all through these manifestations these aspects where you know this person is my my military expert and any military knowledge that he has assimilated because again he can assimilate it so quickly because of his genius steven himself has none of that knowledge all that knowledge resides in this aspect jc or and in times like he'll a new aspect will be created where you know he needed somebody to help him speak hindu and boom he has this aspect who now flipping through you know he flips through really fast a book of, of hindu and now he can speak it but only poorly as this aspect who is hindi herself is telling him what to say and things like that so it's it's a really interesting setup and i I read the first two books i got into the third and i don't know i've been feeling pretty stressed lately and there's a lot of stuff going on in real life that it was getting a little too intense for me so i've stopped and i've taken a break for a little bit but um Again, a really interesting conceit, and and I've enjoyed the way it's handled. So those might be ones that, you know, at some point, pretty easy reads, uh, but worth checking out. Here's an interesting thing related to that very thing and talking about pop culture um, artifacts that are coming up. How familiar are you with the uh, Marvel Comics character Moon Knight, soon to be portrayed by the beautiful Oscar Isaac in a Disney Plus series? So I will say I am familiar enough that I'm very excited for it. And I hope that they do a good job because I think Oscar Isaac is amazing. And I think that Moon Knight has a lot of potential. I don't know, I haven't read, I don't think any Moon Knight, I'm just sort of tangentially familiar, but I think, doesn't he have kind of like multiple personas? He has dissociative identity disorder. Yeah, he has exactly right. what it sounds like the, uh, the dude from Legion has, where he has multiple personalities that will assert themselves out of Mark Spector as a character. Mark Spector is his like, you know, his, his meat space name uh-huh. his his primary identity, but he has these multiple, uh, artifacts of himself or of other people that will, take control in certain situations and it definitely looks like and again that wasn't in the original version of the character that was in uh later versions of the character specifically in uh i want to say it was probably volume three i think it's called mark specter in moon knight instead of just moon knight i think it was written by chuck dixon who's a terrible human being but sometimes there's some good comics (laughs) um but he's that really delves into the dissociate the dissociative identities disorder um and I think Moon Knight's really cool. If you wanted to read a really quick, easy six issues of a Moon Knight book, read the uh, Warren Ellis and Declan Shalvey's first six issues of Moon Knight from about 2014. Those are very good. If you want to be like a quick primer on who is Moon Knight, read those six issues. You don't need to read anything else. 
and then go watch that show because I think it'll deal with a lot of those same things. Cool. And again, cool. it's Oscar Isaac. He's always a good actor. Yeah. Even if the material he's given isn't good, he's always good in it. Yeah, I agree with that. And I am looking forward to that. So, well, cool. It looks cool. I think. It I hope it's too. good. I hope it is. Well, like I say, I think this was, uh, I, I'm glad that we were able to talk about it. I enjoyed this book. Uh, again, weirdly, didn't enjoy it quite as much the second time. I mean, I still enjoyed it, but it didn't hit me quite as hard this second time. But I think a fun little romp into one of the worlds of Brandon Sanderson. And again, I think a good place for people to get a feel for how does he write? How does he set up worlds? And in particular, how does he deal with magic systems? So that's one of the things I, I enjoy about it. And it was fun to fun to chat about it with you. So I appreciate your time tonight. Yeah, it was a blast. And uh, stay tuned for our next episode where I have a silly conceit planned. Ooh, I'm looking forward to it. We'll, we'll talk after we finish recording here. But until then, we appreciate everybody who's taken a, a, a chance to, to give us a listen, to, to check us out. And again, as we've said before, please subscribe, leave us some comments, rate and review if your podcatcher software of choice allows for that. And we look forward to chatting again in a couple weeks. And until then, thanks again, everybody. Have a good one. Yeah, have a good one. Bye.